Happy Father's Day. Thank you. As we were singing this morning, thoughts flooding my heart and mind, um, just as we meditate on the lyrics, the truths that we're singing to music, um, were two wonderful truths that just stuck out to me. Um, one, uh, and, and I'm, I hope I get the lyric right, Steve, but my love often grows cold, and so he must hold me fast. Amen? Um, what a wonderful truth. And as we celebrate Father's Day, I think of how, as a sinful person, uh, uh, attempting to be a good father, there's a waning from laziness to overzealousness, right? Um, we, we, we go back and forth and hope that we stay in the middle, but we go back and forth between laziness and, and, and overzealousness. And, and I just thank the Lord that God is my father and he's not that way. And that my hope and my value and my identity is not in the perfection of my fatherhood, right? And that the same promise of him being my father is offered to my children. That he promises to bless them in Jesus if they just receive Christ. Amen? Let's, let's look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5 and verse 7. Paul says to the churches of Galatia, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we, we have come here to worship you and to celebrate the perfect, righteous, holy Father that we have in you. It's, it's what we're here for. It's hopefully what we wake up each day for, to celebrate that truth. And we, we have worshipped already through song, through singing truths to you and about you and, and with one another in fellowship and unity and harmony. We've, we've sung these truths, these wonderful truths that remind us of our imperfection and remind us of your perfection and it's you who hold us and and no one can snatch us out of your hand and there is nothing in life or death or anything in between that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and what a truth to rejoice in so Lord we pray that you would bless our time now in your word and that your word would speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would minister to us, Lord. And if we've come here this morning in a daze, if we've come here this morning just overwhelmed with busyness or sorrow or sadness or anything that would 
take our attention and our focus and our emotions and our affections and everything that we are, if they've taken our eyes off of you, Lord, that you would take this time and this opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul has, has used this um, illustration of running away elsewhere, or running a race, excuse me, running a race elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians. When you think about a race, when a runner enters a race, there's a goal line. There's always a goal line. And the main goal is to cross it. Some, you may think it's to win, but you can't win the race if you don't cross the goal line. You can't finish the race if you don't cross the goal line. The main goal is cross the goal line. The Christian life, Paul says, is a race. He uses that illustration. It's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Christian life is a marathon. It's a steady pace. Long-distance runners have a pace. They know their time. They know the pace they're supposed to run. They know the marks that they're supposed to hit in order to finish the race. The Christian life is a marathon, and I think it's a marathon through a mountain. You have, you have valleys and you have peaks. You have downhills and you have uphills. And how you run and the path you take impacts whether you cross the finish line at all. If you take the wrong path, you will never make it to the finish line. It's critical that one stays on the right path. Running well, in Paul's mind, means that they responded to the gospel with trust in its message. The Galatians had at first responded to the gospel with trust in its message, relying on Christ rather than their accomplishments. They were running well, Paul says, in the first sentence of verse 7. They responded to the gospel with being in the right race, which was trusting Christ's accomplishment. He says, you were running well in verse 7. Look there, it says, you were running well. You were doing good. And then he says this, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now I want to just kind of camp out on this just for a minute. Why does Paul say obeying the truth? What does he mean by obeying the truth? Because as soon as, I think, as soon as we hear obey, uh, and, and we, we, our mind starts going to what we do, right? Obedience, works. And Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So wh why does Paul say obeying the truth? What does he mean by obeying the truth? Well, obeying the truth means the truth of the gospel. That's what he means here. Who hindered you from obeying the truth of 
the gospel. And here's the thing. What does the truth of the gospel command you to do? Believe. That's what the gospel commands us to do. Believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's what Jesus said. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Who hindered you from doing that? Who hindered you from heeding the call of the gospel, which is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? It's exactly what Jesus says in John 6, 28 and 29. I love this, these two verses here. This is what Paul means when he says this here in verse 7. This is what Paul means. Then they said to him, they come to Jesus and they, they ask him a question. And they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God. Hey, Jesus, what must, what must we do? You see, that's, that's where we like the attention to be in our flesh. What, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response is, is phenomenal. He answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. What kept you from obeying that truth, Paul says, to believe in the one whom God has sent? Do you hear the simplicity? The simplicity of the gospel there that Paul is talking about in Galatians and Jesus answered with in John 6. The simplicity of faith denies all fleshly Pride. Pride goes out the window when you receive and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The simplicity of it goes against the sinful desire to be a savior unto ourselves, which is at the very heart of the natural man, to be a savior unto myself. And that's why the gospel is a stumbling block to the natural man. The work of God in a person, the work of God, Jesus says here in John 6, the work of God in a person is expressed through faith in the finished work of another. He, hear that. Hear the simplicity of that. And hear how it's in opposition to the flesh. The work of God that you're to be doing is believing upon Christ. The work of God in a person is expressed through abandonment of faith in oneself and all faith and hope in the finished work of another person, namely Jesus. And faith, as we saw last week, as stated by Paul in chapter 5, verse 6, is expressed through love. And so this, this false gospel that's being peddled by the false teachers focuses on the accomplishments of man. Hear, hear that. I, we, we, myself included, we need to hear that. 
Because when you wake up tomorrow morning, when you leave here, right now even, the temptation is to focus on your accomplishments. And the gospel calls us to focus on the accomplishments of Jesus. And Paul states in verse 8, this persuasion that's come in and that's taken hold of you is not from him who calls you. These aren't missionaries for God coming into your church. These aren't representatives of God coming with this false gospel. Because the gospel says, John 6 Rest in Christ. God says, rest in my son. The law says do, and the attracting of the flesh to the law is I can do. Right? I can do. Hence, that feeds the ego that says I get credit. Hence, that feeds self to say, I'm self-righteous in and of myself. And our fallen flesh screams all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 2 and 3 there. Our fallen flesh screams. And the temptation to Adam and Eve screamed, you can be like God. You can be a God unto yourself. You can be the one who judges what is good and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And in order to be in a mode of self-righteousness, you have to really be thinking that you are that judge who can excuse your own sinful behavior because you're the judge. And you're not really that bad. We come up with all ways to entangle ourselves in thinking that we can impress God. And Paul says it is an utter rejection of truth. This, this little leaven, as he will say in a minute, has come in and you think that it's okay to just glimpse off of Jesus? It's a rejection wholeheartedly of Jesus. It's an utter rejection of Christ. And one of the things we see in people who are trusting in works is zeal. I mean, there, there is a zeal. I mean, we look around at false religions, and what do we see? We see zeal. And it's attractive to the natural man. And they've come in and they said, hey, you need to do this, and we have these things that you need to observe and all this. And that's how you really impress God. Yeah, Jesus, but this too. So people who are trusting in works express it often in zeal. Zeal is usually expressed in busyness. And, and, and I've I got to say that busyness alone is an artificial piety. Do you know how many people 
have convinced themselves that they're okay with God and that they're spiritual people because they're busy. Don't get me wrong. Christians can be trusting in Christ and be or at least feel busy in ministry. Amen? Amen? Okay. However, I, I want to warn us here because of, of, of the zeal that's brought in by these false teachers and the attractiveness to, to zeal. I don't ever want myself or my family or you to ever stumble into believing zeal replaces faith because that's exactly what they're falling for. And I, I think this is our, our natural fallen tendency. I really do. I think this is our natural fallen tendency to somehow convince ourselves that religious busyness equals spirituality. That religious busyness equals spiritual life, even. And, and that's really at the heart of the false teacher's message. Listen, here, here's this list of things that you need to be doing if you really want to be spiritual. Busyness, doing. Hey, this is what impresses God. If you'll do this and this and this and this and this and this. Ever heard that before? I mean, in, in a big way, it's American Christendom. Resting in religious zeal. Thinking busyness is what will impress God enough to get you in. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, you know this, these, this passage. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, right? Lord, weren't we busy for you? Look at this resume. I did this and this. Man, 20 years, Lord, of me doing things for you. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because they were trusting in their busyness rather than resting in Jesus. And what typically happens in is busyness creates shallowness. And, and I mean, you could be a Christian, and if you're too busy in ministry, a lot of times it creates shallowness. I remember, I think it was, I think it was John MacArthur at a conference, and he, he, one of the first things he said when he got up, he got up and he warned the people at the conference. And he said, I want you to know that what you see here is not normal. What you experience here is not normal. You're going to go back home. That's normal. That's the Christian life, right? Because he didn't want them to be living off the experience of, of 10 
well-known, well-studied, well-versed preachers and singing with three to 5,000 people. And I've, I've been there, done that. It's a wonderful time, but you go home and it's not that. And you're wanting to feed back on the experience when really you should be feeding on Jesus, who's with you wherever you go. He's present with you wherever you go. And it can be a refreshing time that's needed. But what we have to do is we have to feed on Christ in the mundane. But because he's just as nourishing in the mundane as he is in the spectacular. And if we're not careful, we start relating busyness and conference touring as spirituality. Because when you're singing with, with three to 5,000 people, the hair stands up on the back of your necks. And that's not spirituality. And Paul's warning them of this, man. Busyness often creates shallowness. Because here's the reality. We can only absorb so much at a time. I, th I think the statistic is you forget like 95% of, of what you hear one time. Anybody ever hear that? It's something like that. Like that's why they say repetition is king, right? We can only absorb so much at a time. We can only meditate on a certain amount at a time. We can only handle so much at a time. That's why James says, hey, don't look in the mirror and then walk away and forget what you heard or saw. I remember, I remember reading about a man who wrote Spurgeon, and, and this person said to Spurgeon, I've read my Bible from cover to cover many times, and I've not once seen the doctrines of grace as you, taught as you espouse. And Spurgeon's reply was this, and this is perfect. Dear sir, may I recommend that you start by reading the Bible at a slower pace. Now, here, here's the reality. And, and we've all, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for very long, you've experienced this, you have a hard day, didn't get to read your Bible in the morning, you come home, and you, you, you've got that Bible reading plan, and so you haven't read your Bible today, and so you get alone, or you, you get by yourself, or you w sit in the living room, and you, you're exhausted, and you, woof. And if someone were to ask you 15 minutes later what you read, you wouldn't have a clue. You may not even remember the chapter. Am I right? There's a few honest people in here. And, and Spurgeon's point is, slow down. Be better to read a verse and get something than read a whole chapter and not get anything. But we're driven by accomplishment rather than substance. We're, we're driven by a form rather than the essence. And we have to be careful because we can be so driven by accomplishments that we miss the promise. And the promise is this, rest in the accomplished work 
of Jesus. That's all you need. Which is what God commands. And which, Jesus said in John 5, is the work of God. To believe upon him whom he has sent. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I know there, there, probably there's a few in here right now that are misunderstanding. The Bible does say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We must do. Right? We, Chris, the Bible doesn't teach uh, let go and let God. When you're reading your Bible, it's you reading your Bible. God works in us both to will and to do, but we still do. And when we do, it's a fruit of the Spirit working in us to will and to do. But here's the thing. The priority of doing is believing on the Son of God. Resting in the person and finished work of Jesus. That is the motivation, and hear me on this, that, that is supposed to be the motivation of all we do. Everything we do is supposed to be foundationally motivated by this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So everything that we do is to be motivated out of a resting in what Jesus has already done. <coughs> that is how we have Christian joy. That's the, that's the conduit to joy. Is that we're resting. Everything we do, whether we preach, sing, lead music, hold the doors open, hand out bulletins, teach Sunday school, greet your neighbors, love on people in the world, evangelize everything we do, we do with a motivation that Jesus has already done all that we need to be reconciled to God. We're not, we're not doing to prove. We're not doing to earn. We're doing it because we're resting in Christ. And any doctrine that declares anything other than resting in Christ for all you need to be reconciled to God and in covenant with Christ is another gospel, and it is anti-Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. And this is why Paul says the persuasion, this persuasion is not from God who calls you. It's not from him who calls you. Remember Psalm 2 from, from last Sunday night. God's desire is to bless the nations through his king's son. He pleads with people to kiss the son, to submit to the son. God would never persuade people to reject the son. And that's what the false teachers are doing. 
Resting in anything other than the finished work of the Son is the same as trampling him underfoot. It is to say that he is not sufficient. It's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ, his person, and his work. Paul states in Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul uses a proverb here that illustrates the penetrating power of evil. We have to forget, we have to remember, I mean, that we still have this fallen body that we're in. And as Paul said in Romans 7, I find that there's a law within myself that I don't do the things that I want to do and I do the things that I don't want to do. Well, what's Paul saying there? My desire as a Christian with the new heart that, God, that the Holy Spirit has given me is that I obey Christ perfectly, but I can't. Why? Because this outer man is wasting away while the inner man is being renewed. And one day... This outer man will fall away for good and we will be clothed over with a body that will inherit immortality and there will no longer be sin in our life and in our uh, surroundings. But Paul's warning them and warning us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is a biblical truth taught by Jesus in the Gospels and throughout the whole of scripture and we see this truth played out over and over and over in the Bible and in real world like our life a permitted glimpse becomes a repeated glimpse becomes a stare becomes a pursuit a permitted glimpse becomes a repeated glimpse becomes a stare, becomes a pursuit. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Not only a truth for anyone, but recorded biblical truth in the life of David and many others. The evil being allowed here is a taking one's eyes off Christ and putting them on self. For a hope of goodness in the sight of God. And this is extremely dangerous as we've seen as we've moved through this epistle that Paul doesn't hold any punches. He's, he wants them to understand that they're in an extremely dangerous situation. And, and the common response is, oh, a little weight on religious zeal isn't all bad. Right? Oh, I mean, you know. But Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. One match used carelessly can burn down an entire forest. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The foundation of salvation is the perfection of Jesus. The work of salvation is the power of of the Holy Spirit, and the goal of salvation is the glory of the King's Son, Jesus Christ. Coloss Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That Listen to this, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything Jesus Christ might be preeminent. First, first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is contagious, Paul says. And, and as you read through the Old Testament, you can see the contagiousness of it in misunderstanding the, the intention and purpose of the law and trying to use the law as a way to impress God and obligate him to bless you. So much so that the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not think they needed a savior. That's why he said, those who need a physician, I've come to heal. It's so contagious. And it can, obviously, you see here in the epistle of the Galatians that it can take over a whole church. It can take whole, uh, over a whole area of churches. And, and I believe that in America, it's taken over the majority of churches. That, that we've become a Christianity that's accomplishment-driven rather than Jesus resting. And we feel like we're missing out if we don't come to a church that, that, that just preaches a list of uh, do, 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 do. I remember in Florida doing a new member interview with a, a, a person, a, a dear brother of mine, and he said, man, when I came to this church at first, I, I, I didn't really like it. I got to admit, something just kept coming me back. He goes, I, I couldn't get over that every time I came, it was all about Jesus. <laughs> and obviously he understood that at that point, but he was just confessing that my Christianity had not been coming to hear about Jesus. And what Jesus has done for you. Listen, fathers, today, your joy that your fathers is because of Jesus. It it's surely not on the perfection or the goodness of my being a father. I fail all the time. And praise the Lord that my kids don't get into the kingdom by parental determinism, but by the grace of God. Grace, grace, grace. Right, Steve? Praise the Lord. It's enough to weep about. One of the, I mean, the, the condition of Christianity in America, I believe, is because the gospel has been replaced by religious zeal, religious activity, moralism. And what will really heal this land is for churches and pulpits to get back to the gospel. Paul's declaration of the false teachers. 
He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, we know as we've gone through this that there's more than one false teacher. There was a group. Paul, up to this point, has used plural pronouns when speaking of the false teachers. It was a group. He said that in verse 7 of chapter 1, verse 17 of chapter 4, and he will continue to use the plural pronoun when speaking of the false teachers. And so this is, this is what I think he's saying here and why he's gone to a singular pronoun. I think he's saying this. There are obviously several disturbers, right? But be on your guard, therefore, so that if any one of them come to you, of these creators of confusion, resist him. Resist that person and resist that person's message because they will pay the penalty. Any other message, Paul says, is doomed to fail because there is no other gospel. And those who propagate and proselytize with anything other than the gospel will stand before God and give an account of not only their own rejection of Jesus Christ, who came to bless the nations, but they will also have to give an account as to why they led others away from their only hope, who is Jesus. And Paul says, stay away from them, reject them, reject their message, because if you become involved in it, you too will face the same as them. But as for them, Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. I love this because Paul's confidence is not in the Galatians. Right? I have confidence in what? The Lord. I have confidence in the Lord. Paul's confidence is not in the Galatians. It's not in some innate goodness within them. His confidence is in the Lord. And listen, that is exactly where we must keep our confidence. My confidence is in the Lord, and so should yours be, not in yourself and what you do. My confidence is in the Lord. And you need to take that view too. You need to come back to that view that your confidence is solely and exclusively in Jesus and not what you do. Because you've been led astray. You've walked away from that. You're walking away from that. Our confidence should only been, be in Jesus Christ so that there is no boasting in the flesh. Listen to Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see where the confidence is there? It's in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see that? Do you see what those passages and what Paul's saying here? It's pointing you to rest in Jesus. That's the race. Our confidence, praise the Lord, is not in our keeping ourselves in the covenant with Christ. 
Our confidence is in the promise of Christ to keep every one of his sheep in covenant with him. John 10, 28 through 30, I give them eternal life. Those who are in covenant with me, my people, those who I've bled for and died for, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one was able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So we can confidently say, Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? From beginning to end, it's all about the grace of God. So, running the race Here's the race, resting in Christ. Stay on that path, Paul says. Rest in Jesus. The work, doing the work of God is believing upon him who he sent. The race is keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's the race. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. Dear Christian, don't stop looking to Jesus. Don't stop resting in Jesus. We run the race, but our motivation for running is the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The finished work of Christ on our behalf is the foundation of all we do. It is the foundation of all we do. And I'm going to tell you something. When we become miserable in life, it's because we've taken our eyes off the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we lose our joy in life, it's because we've taken our eyes off the finished work of Jesus Christ and we've put them on our accomplishments, which are not so good. How many of you fail every day? So, so here's the thing. Where is true joy? Where does true joy exist? Where does true joy exist? Where does, where does happiness, true biblical happiness exist? It exists in resting in the work of Christ. So that when we fail, which is, by the way, every day, we can, we can, we can praise the Lord that that failure is not somehow counted against us. Because the, the perfect righteousness of Christ has already been imputed to our account. We don't, listen, your failure this afternoon, you'll do it. I'll do it. Your failure this afternoon will not remove the record of Christ's righteousness on your account. 
That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Rest in him. Do what God calls us to do while we're resting in his perfection given to us by faith alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gospel call to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have come to you and have abandoned all hope in self and all hope in anything other than Jesus. Everything we need, every, all of our identity, all of our value, everything we need in life and beyond, all that we need to be reconciled to you, to be adopted into the family of God, everything we need we find in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And the temptation of the world and of the devil and of false ideologies and the flesh is to take our eyes off of Christ and put them on self. And as soon as we do that, joy starts depleting in our affections. And the way to restore that joy is to take our eyes off self and put them back on the person and finished work of Jesus, which is the foundation of our joy. The foundation of the good news is that we don't keep ourselves in covenant with Christ. Christ keeps us. Glory, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Help us to remember this truth, to preach it to one another, and to rejoice in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.